Our Old Testament reading comes to us from Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. To you, O Lord. He left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds again gathered around him. And, as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one se separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, this teaching of Jesus, this interaction that he had, that you'd give us wisdom and understanding, ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, what he's talking about and how we might live under the truthfulness of it, we ask. Be with us in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So a number of years ago, I read uh, a book that Lauren Winter wrote. Lauren Winter is a professor of theology, spirituality at Duke Divinity, <clears throat> and she wrote a book just after, or sometime after, rather, her own divorce uh, from her husband, and, and the book was called Still, Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis. It's a wonderful collection of essays that she wrote as she was trying to understand, how do I, how do I know who I am as a Christian now? How do I think about my life in this space that I've entered into, and my life with God in particular? And... Um, but one of the things, one of the concepts she introduces in that book that I found so incredibly helpful is this notion 
that she calls dislocated exegesis. Now, dislocated exegesis, what does she mean by that? Just this. So it's, it's about reading texts of Scripture in contexts that don't fit, right? In, in other words, you, you're reading a text of Scripture in a circumstance, in a situation of life that seems so far afield from whatever Jesus is talking about. So, for example, you're standing in line at a bank, which most of us never do anymore, right, because you've got your app. And uh, we're standing in line at a bank, or maybe you're just making a deposit on your app, and you're reading a text of Scripture about Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me, right? And you're like, whoa, what is Jesus talking about in that context? Or maybe you're standing in the great city of Hartford, Connecticut, right, which is a great insurance city, right? And you read Jesus' words in Matthew, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink about your body, right? And you begin to get the point of what dislocated exegesis is. It's reading scripture in these odd contexts. But here's the thing. That's the only way we ever read scripture. You know, this morning as Sydney was introducing our time of worship, she said, let this be a moment in which we reorder our priorities, right? When we come into the context, when we want to hear God's word and we want to hear the things he says to his church, and by the spirit embrace them and apply them, we are always doing dislocated exegesis. Because the world that God imagines, the world that he describes, the world that he aspires to, that he sort of sets in front of us to want ourselves, is not the world that we inhabit. We live very broken lives. And so it's interesting to think about that as we come into the topic this morning, which is a topic about divorce and really more about marriage than divorce. But it feels oddly out of place and it feels disorienting and sometimes it feels disorienting because... Each of us in the room, I mean, I think it's probably 100% of us in the room have some connection to divorce. You know, maybe it's personally in our own families, maybe it's in your own life, maybe it's you, you're the child and your parents divorced, maybe it's a friend or a neighbor or a colleague in the workplace. Every single person in this room is in some way connected to that. And so suddenly we're reading these stories where Jesus is interacting about divorce in remarriage, we're doing dislocated exegesis. Our relationships across the board are contexts of struggle. And one of the reasons it feels so odd is we read this particular text because you know what, where have we been, right? We've been Jesus talking about children, for example, right? That if you want to think about leadership in the church or in his community, it means that you welcome a child, right? You welcome the least of these. You welcome people without status, people that don't have anything in some sense. And then Jesus talking about how we need to take up our own cross and follow him into the world. And then next week, we're going to get back to the same topic of children. As the disciples push children away, he's going to say, wait, you must become like a child yourself. So how does right this teaching about divorce and marriage sort of get sandwiched into those statements about children. It feels really disorienting in so many ways. Mark tells us here that it's a trap, right? It's a trap. This is a trick question. It's a test question. There is no good way for Jesus really to answer this question that is not going to stir the pot for someone. It's not going to upset someone, right? Um, this is a trap question. Jesus is being asked to weigh in on a politically charged question in his day. 
And it's a religiously charged question in his day. Uh, now, I want you to think about this for a moment as we move toward this topic. Have you ever been asked a question by someone that felt like it was a trap? No? When someone puts a question to you that feels like a trap, what, what is its characteristic? It's, it's not open, right? It's not a, a question born of curiosity, right? It's not a question born of saying, hey, I, I really want to have a real important dialogue with you. I want to, let's, let's do some theological exegesis here. Or let's, do, let's have an ethical conversation. Let's have some meaningful connection around this issue. That is not what a trap is, right? Can we all agree to that? That's not what a trap is. It's not an open conversation. It is meant to take you down. Right? That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to pull you down, to dismantle you in some sense, so that they can what? They can dismiss you. They can whatever. Now, here's how I respond to trap questions. And some of you might have had experiences with this. <clears throat> maybe, maybe you share my responses. Sometimes I just withdraw and retreat, right? I, I just, like, back off. Why? Because there is no way I can win this, right? And so I just withdraw. I just don't want to deal with it. Right? Have you ever had that response to something? You just don't want to deal with it. Uh, the, the, the person that you're engaging, the group that you're engaging feels overwhelming, right? And so in anger and frustration, I just back off. The other way I do it is sometimes I, I, um, I, I every once in a while, now you think, Tuck, you're a mild-mannered guy. Every once in a while, I like to stir the pot. And so I, I just think, I'm going to poke the bear. You know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just stir the pot a little bit and see where I go with this question. I'm just going to sort of, you know, put them in their place. Because why? I'm, I'm angry. I'm frustrated with them, right, in some sense. And sometimes I have a moment where I think, I know more than you. And so my point and my intent is to sort of leverage my knowledge toward the circumstance to what? To put them in their place? Now that's, that's more like pride operating, right? So you see, right, there's anger, there's frustration, there's pride. There are all these different things, these emotional responses that sort of push us to engage these kinds of questions in different ways. In my healthier moments, right, I think I, I hope that I'm able to sort of get some distance from the question and remember something that Jesus says, right? He says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, I'm not calling the other person swine. I'm just thinking in my mind, don't cast your pearls before swine. Or maybe I think, you know, <clears throat> about the, the proverb, right? Don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? So I'm sort of thinking about these things, and I'm thinking, okay, Tuck, this is not a real dialogue. This is not a real conversation. Treat it accordingly. Don't get overly emotionally involved. Don't play into the game. You know, that, that's kind of where I, where I tend to go. Now, traps are commonplace in the life of Jesus, right? Uh, you just read through the Gospels, right? So you, on the one hand, you often have the disciples who are just confused about Jesus, and they sometimes they're afraid to sort of get clarified questions. We saw that last week. But other times, uh, you, you're Jesus interacting in the public sphere, and it's in the public square, really, and it's with um, the religious leaders of his day, right? And very often, that's where the trap questions happen for Jesus. So think, for example, the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? That seems like a benign question, but it's a trap question, right? They're trying to catch Jesus in some way. Or you might think about that interesting story 
where the Sadducees bring a hypothetical sort of circumstance to Jesus, right? Think about it. It goes like this. A woman marries a man. He dies. The woman marries the man's brother. He dies. The woman marries the next brother. He dies and so on, right? And so then the question, because the Sadducees really struggle with believing in resurrection at all, they say, well, hey, so in the resurrection, whose wife is she, Jesus? It's a trap. There's just no way to get out of that. Right? So that's what it is. It's a trap. Of course, Jesus handles that situation brilliantly. But um, this is a trap about a question about divorce law. Now, the Old Testament had a number of ways of thinking about divorce law, but this is a question about one particular space uh, in Deuteronomy 24. Now, so there are three things I want us to think about. First, this nature of the trap as it's happening. What is it exactly? And then secondly, Jesus' answer. How does he engage it? And then finally, our hope for living with the story of Christ. So first, the trap. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that is a very legitimate question in the context of faith because we want to live in our human relationships in a way that honors God. It's a discipleship question. It's a pastoral question, right? So, and those questions almost always happen when someone has approached me or even you in, in some circumstance of hurt, right? Some brokenness of relationship. They come to you and they're trying to discern what what does God want here? That's a legitimate question to be asking, right? Totally. That's not what's happening here. There's absolutely no indication that any case study is in view. This is just about sort of a blanket statement around some ethical dimension of law. It's not a pastoral situation. It's a trap, right? Now, why is it a trap? How are they trapping Jesus? We struggle sometimes when we read scripture to connect with the context in which things are happening, right? I, I get that. There's a vast difference between my world and Jesus' world. Huge difference between my world and Jesus' world. I don't, unless I look for it and study and attempt, right, to understand what's happening in his circumstances, know very much about that world, right? So if I'm just reading along in scripture and I see this, I think, ah, a new law. Or Jesus has just made clear the law, right? But I'm, not, I'm forgetting on the one hand, the moment I do that, I'm forgetting, oh, this is a trap. Remember, Tuck, this is a trap. This is not a real conversation. It's not an honest conversation. So when you begin to think about the context, there's a political context. And the political context has to do with Herod's marriage to Herodias, his wife, who was previously married to Herod's brother, only he didn't die, she divorced him. Remember John the Baptist? He, he kind of poked the bear on that question. And he lost his head. So is this a circumstance maybe when the religious leaders are hoping that Jesus will weigh in on this concept of divorce or this situation of divorce and maybe lose his head too? Is this how they imagine Jesus' life being dismantled? I don't know. 
possibly. It's a political trap, but it's also a religious trap in their particular day because there's a debate between two schools of rabbinic thought, and it goes like it's all around Deuteronomy chapter 24, which speaks about a specific instance of divorce. And I remember there are multiple laws of the Old Testament about divorce that sort of give you some guidelines for understanding it and applying it and working through it. But this is a particular space, right? Deuteronomy chapter 24, where the law um, permits divorce for a cause of sexual immorality. Now, in the school of Shammai, that rabbinic school of Shammai, they taught that the focus was exclusively on the topic of sexual immorality. That's, this is very clear, right? Uh, but the school of Hillel taught, right, that in contrast, there's actually two things that are mentioned here. It's not just a s sexual immorality. It is that. But it's also a cause. A cause. Any cause. And that was the popular debate in the religious community that Jesus lived in. This debate, this sort of tangle between them. Now, how would that be a trap? Well, likely, perhaps, the moment Jesus weighs in on some particular view, people are going to be less interested in Jesus if they sort of lean one way or the other in this public debate around divorce law, right? Um, now, Mark... Mark's gospel is very terse. It's compressed, right? You remember it. It's shorter, right? And so we read these little stories. Sometimes they feel quite choppy. And if you go to the other gospels, you, you know, sometimes you get a little lengthier dialogue around this. If you go to Matthew's gospel around this particular incident, Matthew actually uses very similar language of the popular debate. He says, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Which allowed for easy divorce, something like, my wife doesn't cook as well as she used to. Or my wife's beauty is fading. Maybe I should divorce her and marry up. And so on and so forth, right? Now that feels very patriarchal in the worst sort of way, right? Especially if you're a woman and you're sitting here listening to this, you're thinking about that particular circumstance. But here's the thing that we need to hold in mind. Whenever we talk about divorce law in the Old Testament or the New Testament, in Jesus' day, divorce was almost without exception the male privilege. Interesting. The male privilege. So the trap is set. Jesus Take a stance, weigh in, tell us what you think. So the second thing we need to think about is what is Jesus' answer? How does he engage the trap, right? Um, and this is instructive for us because we find ourselves in similar spaces of being trapped today. So the first thing that Jesus does is he brings some clarification. He says, okay, look, right? So think about this law of Moses that you're sort of, you know, perseverating on think about this law of Moses it's very important that you remember and that you understand that law uh, that, that rather divorce is a concession and not a command it's a concession and not a command right in other words there's no license or command to divorce divorce is a merciful concession that God offers humanity why because our hearts are hard because of the hardness of the human heart. In other words, human weakness is in the mind of God when he makes this concession. Do you remember in our opening of worship when we um, were reading Psalm 103? Is that lovely line that I just hold on to because it says what? God is mindful 
dust. When you think about your life and the places that you imagine yourself to have failed or struggled, do you realize that God doesn't look on that space in your life and say, gotcha? Do you realize that he doesn't look on that space of life and he says, why didn't you know better? You ought to have known better. God looks on that space in your life and he says, of course, you're dust. Your life is unfolding in this broken world. Of course you struggle to love me and you struggle to love one another. Of course. Human weakness. And very often in that Old Testament context and even in Jesus' context, divorce was a way of protecting the most vulnerable person in that relationship, which in their day would have been the woman, the wife. So then Jesus presses them to something else. So they need to remember it's a, right, it's, a, it's a concession, not a command. But then he presses them more toward, if you want to think about it this way, toward the command side about marriage. In other words, Jesus begins to talk about, well, let's think about what marriage is. Let's sort of get back to some basics here. Before we talk about the concession, let's think about, more importantly, like what is God's dream for this relationship, right? That's where Jesus leans toward. What is marriage anyway? And he takes us back to the creation story, and we read these verses, right? God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All right. When you hear those words, my guess is those are the words in which the trap happens for us today, right? Have you ever had anybody say, hey, what's your stance on LGBT? Have you ever had anybody say, hey, what do you, what do you think about gay marriage? Or had anybody say, what's your church's stance? That's often where it goes, right? What's your church's stance on these matters? Or what about gender? Are you of the non-binary or the binary school of thought on gender? Where do you stand? Have you ever encountered some of those kinds of questions or circumstances in life? Trap. Traps get set from the right and from the left. We all ask them and people are asking them of us from both sides of arguments. But here's the problem. Almost always those questions are being asked inside of the ethos and culture of the culture war. They're not being asked because someone says, Pastor Tuck, I really, I'm really struggling to understand some things, and I just want to sit down and talk. Can we talk openly and honestly about these kinds of questions, right? That's not usually how these questions come up for any of us. They don't come up that way for me, I'll say that. Jesus here teaches us that God created a gendered humanity that together image God's likeness. It's a humanity that's like one another, right? Remember Adam's statement, bone of my bone? But also differentiated, male and female. And then we read that the man leaves his attachments of his household and he binds himself to the wife and they become a new thing, right? Uh, One unit, a one flesh reality. God does something unique and mystical when people come together in this covenant relationship. There's some oneness that emerges. Back to the book I mentioned earlier, Lauren Winter. 
She um, describes observing the one flesh quality of marriage at the communion rail of her church. She tells this beautiful, beautiful story of going up for communion and she sees this elderly couple come forward. They're old and aging and he himself is uh, apparently struggling with some degenerative disease of some sort, one or another. Uh, she doesn't know fully what it is, but she later finds out that his disease includes this declining ability to actually chew and eat and swallow. And so what, he, what she sees at the communion rail is that the wafer comes by and is passed out, and they each receive the body of Christ. And then the husband, or the wife, rather, as the chalice comes by, she takes her wafer and she dips it into the chalice. And she eats, she chews, she eats, she swallows. And then as the chalice comes to the husband, he takes his wafer and he dips it in the chalice. And he places it carefully on his wife's lips. And she chews and she eats. And she says, it's the mystery of one flesh. That's what I just saw. It's a stirring, right, even in the context of her own life. Thinking on this mystery of union, Jesus essentially says that our job as friends in these relationships and our job as leaders in the church is not to tear apart for any cause that which God has put together. If you want to care for people in their dustness, in their weakness, Inside of relationships, it is so important that we not miss the purpose, the calling in God's imagination for a relationship. Last week, Stacy and I watched uh, the rather, uh, well, hard, hard film, the Netflix film, Marriage Story. It's nominated for Best Picture, Adam Driver for uh, Best Actor, Leading Actor, Scarlett Johansson for Best Leading Actress. It's a wonderful film, it's a wonderful story but so hard. The film opens with the divorcing couple sitting in a mediator's office who is moving their life toward divorce. And he asks them simply, first of all, remember what drove the two of you together. One flesh. It's hard to enter an uncoupling without also remembering that this is a space of loss and pain and grief. Divorce is a merciful concession, not the command of God. That space belongs more properly to the space of marriage. And so Jesus seemingly survives the trap, right, this public trap that's set for him. They're forced to begin to think about deeper issues, about other issues, about their own questions around divorce, their own debate, their own political circumstance from a new angle, from a different perspective perhaps. But then he's in private with the disciples, right? And this is the sort of private moment. So the retreat from the public space into the private space. And here the disciples interestingly seem honestly curious, right? They want, they want Jesus to keep talking about this matter, and it's a place of open conversation, and it's different from the previous situation, different from the previous context. They want him to say more, maybe about Shammai and Hillel, maybe about Herod and Herodias. What is the deeper answer, Jesus? Engage these questions. 
And so they push him, and they're not afraid to ask this time like they were before. So Jesus wades in a little more boldly, perhaps without any kind of reserve, just aware of who he's talking to in this particular moment. And at verse 11, he says this, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's not hard to see how this really maps on to that current political debate, is it? Because Herodias had actually divorced her husband, Philip, in order to marry Herod. Jesus seems to be circling back to these traps and now more specifically addressing the problem. Essentially what Jesus says, I think, is that it's wrong to divorce in order to marry someone else better. It's wrong to divorce in order to marry someone else. To do so is to commit a form of adultery against the spouse that is left behind. Husband and wife here are equal violators of this. In other words, you can't trade up spouses. Interestingly, we think this is an old question, but it's not at all an old question. This morning I pulled up my New York Times, and there's an article in the New York Times magazine this very day, this weekend, that basically asks the ethicist, right, the person on the New York Times who's sort of answering hard questions, Hey, how should I relate to a friend who divorced his wife because he had an affair while she was pregnant? How should I relate to this friend? That seemed really wrong. These are contemporary questions. These aren't old and ancient questions. These are contemporary questions that we still ask. But here we're meant to see that the one flesh nature of marriage runs deeper than any divorce certificate can safely uncouple. And we're just meant to sit with that awkward reality that this is where we are and this is what life is and this is what relationships are as we come into the context of a covenanted relationship with one another. The trap, the answer. Now what about hope? I'm not seeing a lot of hope in this text. Help me get there, right? (laughs) Now, if you feel that way, and those are the questions that linger, guess what? The disciples shared your view. Because if you look over at Matthew's, right, more comprehensive account of this particular story, Matthew tells us that immediately after Jesus gives this teaching, that their response is just this. If this is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. It sounds like they might have had more affiliation with the school of Hillel. In other words, it's better to enter marriage with one eye on the door. And if we can't, why in the world would anyone ever enter a relationship like this that is so deep and so binding, so one fleshy? Why would you do that? How do we find hope here? Think about the larger context, right? All of the, we're just sort of extracting one story. And remember I said earlier that what might, what Matthew, or what rather Mark is doing here is he, this, this story gets placed in between two other stories about children. Do you remember that? On the one hand, if I'm wrestling with my own sense of leadership and my own sense of wanting to be great or have status inside of the community, 
Jesus says, look, here's how you get it. You serve the least. You think about the children, the person in the room that has no status. Look at them. Welcome them. Next week, the disciples will push parents and children away. Now, these are parents that are taking Jesus at his word, and they're bringing their children because they want him to lay hands on them and bless them. They want the blessing of Jesus over their kids' lives. And the disciples start saying, no, go away, stop. And Jesus will say, don't hinder the children from coming to me. Moreover, guess what? If you want to receive the kingdom of God, in other words, if you want to become a person who enters the kingdom of God, who's a part of the kingdom of God, of this blessed reality, you have to become like a child. In other words, you have to become a person in your own mind and heart that has no status. That's how we enter in. That's how we come to Jesus. With nothing in my hands, I bring simply to your cross. I cling. See, the truth is that all of us are hard-hearted. It's so easy to point fingers at who has a hard heart, right? But the teaching of Jesus across the stories of the gospel is that all of us are hard-hearted. All of us have weak humanity. All of us struggle to follow God, to love him, to love neighbor. All of us struggle in so many different ways relationally. The only place suitable to any of us is that of a little child when it comes to being in the presence of God. And to rejoice that we have that status of no status. Dislocated exegesis. That's how we read scripture. Because we're reading about God's imagination inside of a world that has little imagination for the things that God has imagination for. So maybe this morning you're divorced. You've been through a divorce and you feel the pain and the severity of uncoupling. It's more than a movie to you. Maybe you're married, but you're aware that as good as your marriage may be, that it's punctuated with just sadness over and over again. Like, because you don't connect with your spouse the way you want to connect. None of us do. We struggle with that. And you think, how do I get that one fleshness? Maybe you're single and you're wondering, is it possible for me to have intimacy and connection like it seems like God has sort of designed humanity to exist within? That if not marriage, even friendship? I mean, just think about your friendships and spaces of connecting or not connecting. Think about the loneliness that characterizes all of our lives, single or married. Maybe you struggle with questions of gender in your own life. And you just live quietly with those things. You never talk to people about it. It's just there. And you wonder, will someone ever know me like me? Maybe you feel isolated and unknown. Jesus invites each of us with our particular stories, as complex as we may feel them to be, as painful as we feel them to be, 
our stories, not a generic story of fallenness, but our own story of hardness of heart, our own story of human weakness, our own story to love, our own failure to love, to become childlike before him and to become the very ones that receive his mercy and his grace, his welcome, his forgiveness, his life. Dislocated exegesis is all any of us ever do. As we read the story of Jesus in the midst of our broken world and our broken lives. But the hope is simply this. That God graciously meets us and he stirs our imagination for his kingdom. And he invites us to rest in its gift that has come fully into our world in the person of who Jesus is. And so we keep reading week after week after week. We keep gathering and saying, let's reorder our priorities yet again because we struggled this week. But God is so gracious to welcome us in those places of struggle because he's mindful that we are from the dust. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think about these words of Jesus in the context of our own lives, whether we're married or not married, whatever our particular struggle is, would you be with us this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we do this dislocated exegesis, that we might remember the hope that's come into the world in Christ, that is hope for us, the real us, the us that you see, the one before whom all hearts are open. All thoughts discern, no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, would you, by the inspiration of your spirit, that we would be individuals in a community that worthily loves you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.